All right, so um, I feel like I got to cheat and get like a couple weeks ahead because uh, this sermon just rolled forward and then the next sermon rolled forward and our brother Brandon Ash is coming back next week to bring the word. I'm excited about that. So if you haven't heard Brandon preach, uh, you'll be blessed to be here. He's a wonderful expositor and I love sitting under his preaching. So I'll be right up here and uh, looking forward to that. Uh, but we're back in Exodus. It's Exodus chapter six. If you have your Bible, open up to Exodus six. And uh, it's easy. It's the second book of the Bible. You'll find it. If you get to uh, Numbers or Deuteronomy or Leviticus, uh, those are out of order, but you've gone too far. And while you turn there, let's, I, want, I want us to reflect on something because one of the most unique features of Christianity is a lack of checklists. It's a lack of checklists, okay? So for example, if you're a practicing Muslim, uh, you have fard, right, which is Arabic for prescriptions, these are obligatory acts which you have to perform in order to receive credit, right, which is at best, or if it's really good, right, thawab, right, this reward. So you have prescriptions that you have to perform in order to get credit to your account or to get ultimately a reward. Or if you are practicing rabbinical Judaism, right, which practically marks all Jews today, rabbinical Judaism, you have mitzvah. These are the things which you do which will tip the scales in your favor to do righteous acts, mitzvah, in order to be righteous. Uh, and if you practice any Eastern religion uh, that's come out of India, so uh, Sikh or uh, Buddhist or Hindu, then you have dharma, which is really hard to translate, but it kind of approximates the dutiful customs necessary for a moral life. It's hard to translate, but dharma. Um, that is not to say that Christianity is not marked by works. We are saved not by works, but unto works, Ephesians 2.10. But there's some key differences here, and let's just go through a thought experiment to show this to you. If you, if you ask someone, uh, how do you know someone is a Muslim, Jew, Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh, uh, they will tell you, um, I, was, I was born it, or I practice it. I converted and I practice Judaism. Sometimes Christians will say this, um, but when we ask for Christianity, what's the first answer that we're looking for? If somebody says, I practice Christianity, we're like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Because what we're looking for is, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sake and that his righteousness has been credited to your account? Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sake, he was buried, was raised, ascended into heaven, and now works on your behalf? You know, one of the reasons that our faith seems to disappear sometimes is because uh, we look inside of ourselves. But faith is ultimately outside of us because faith, the object of our faith in Christianity is a person. It's a person. So when you look inside of yourself to know, how, am, I, am I doing good enough? Am I, am I good enough Christian? Ironically, the more that you look inside of yourself, the more your faith seems to evaporate because there what you find in your heart is condemnation. You find the, the recognition of the gap that exists between God's holy righteousness and your own lack of righteousness. Because you don't find faith inside of yourselves, we find it in a person. It's one of the reasons if you look for faith, it's inside of yourself, you, you can't find it, it seems to go away. If you look at your circumstances though, you won't find guarantees either. Because life's conditions are so vapid. One week things are going really well, the next week things are going really poorly. So circumstances can't be trusted out. We can't look inside of ourselves. We can't look at our circumstances. But the Bible tells us where to look to know that God's salvation is secure. 
God's name and reputation. God's name and reputation. I told you to turn to Exodus, but I didn't even turn to Exodus. I gotta turn to Exodus now. So I wanna remind you before I read this text of what's just happened prior to this. Because we're, we're to look at God's name and reputation for our assurance. So right before this passage in Exodus chapter five, God has commissioned Moses to speak to Pharaoh, right? Moses obeys and then Pharaoh punishes the Israelites uh, because of Moses' actions, so he goes, becomes more cruel. Moses looks at his circumstances, then asks the question, God, why have you done this great evil to your people? Did I even do the right thing here because nothing seems to have changed? And then God tells Moses, you're gonna see what I'm gonna do. So that's where we pick up. And Moses is gonna learn a truth in our text today that is a great truth that we need to hear in our hearts today, which is that God's reputation, God's name, his reputation is the guarantee of our salvation. God's name and reputation is the guarantee of our salvation. So if you have your Bibles, I'm gonna read Exodus chapter six. I'm gonna read one through 13. One through 13. Exodus six, one through 13 says, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant, my unbreakable promise, right? My covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give you to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord told Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How, will they then, how then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So our first point today, if you're taking notes, is we're all tempted to look at our circumstances for assurance. We're all tempted to look at our circumstances for assurance, to look at what's happening outside of us or around us, and to ask the question, is, am I in, in right standing with God? Now, why is Moses given this answer by the Lord? Why does God say this thing to Moses? It's because Moses is looking at his circumstances, right? So this is why this passage is here. This is why the Holy Spirit inspired Exodus 6, because Moses is looking at his circumstances and he's wondering if God will actually deliver his people. So if you go back with me, just look right above in your text, Exodus 5, 22 through 23, it says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you've not delivered your people at all. You say, we're not fundamentally different than Moses, I would posit, are we? Like we, we talked about two weeks ago, 
Each one of us has been in a moment or a situation. We've looked around at our situation, circumstances, we've really thought like, really, this is it? This is the best that God has to offer? And what's the problem? What's the problem in Moses' heart? What's the problem in our heart when we're doing that? The problem is we regularly look at our circumstances as signs and assurance of, that we're right standing with God or that God will save us. That's not how, again, circumstances work. The Bible paints a really complex picture on the topic like we talked about two weeks ago. But just as a reminder, just hear what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I think the NLT is a really helpful translation, so just listen. You don't have to turn there. Of course, you can if you'd like. But Ecclesiastes 8.14 says, And this is not all that is meaningless in our world. In this life, good people are often treated as though they are wicked. And wicked people are often treated as though they were good. That is so meaningless. And can you believe a verse like that's in the Bible? It's one of the reasons, again, I really love the honesty of the Bible. Uh, because we could put a mask on and pretend like that's not how circumstances are, but the Bible doesn't even do that. The Bible is honest about the human condition. It's honest about how things really are. It's really hard for us in a city of engineers, maybe, to, to deal with this because we like probably more than most inputs and outputs. If I put in these factors, I should output these things, right? I put in hard work, virtue, and humility. I should, on the other side of this, get good things out, right? Or if I do bad things, I should get bad things out. And yet, like the preacher has just said in Ecclesiastes 8.14, it doesn't really work like that. Can I suggest to you, perhaps, as I think about this, like, why do why do we fall captive to that? Um, I wonder if it's the insidious influence even in our own hearts, maybe not assent. I don't think anybody has said, this is what I believe. But maybe it's even the insidious influence of something like the prosperity gospel in our hearts. Maybe, right? If I do this, then I get this blessing or might. I don't know. On the one hand, you have that heritage in kind of American religious culture. But then on the other hand, you have this this sense that I am, uh, it's this tradition of revivalism. If I get my heart right, if I do the work to get my heart right, then God will bless me on the other side of that. So maybe it's not prosperity gospel, but it's this revivalistic idea that I'm getting myself prepared. God is going to do something as a result of that. Or it could be word of faith. You see good works, generosity, and you get blessing on the other side of that. You've heard people, pastors, preachers, false preachers say maybe, you know, you, you sow a seed of $100 and the Lord will bless you with $100,000 on the other side. That's not how the economy of God works, brothers and sisters. Wherever it comes from, we wonder why our circumstances aren't better. God, if, I, if you love me, why are things not changing? That's Moses' question. I did what you asked, and Pharaoh's not letting the people go. In fact, it's gotten worse. So, second thing, second point I'd like us to see today is that um, we do, we must actually live according to God's design to have assurance. So the assurance that God will deliver us, the assurance that Moses needs that God will deliver the people out of Israel, that's what he's looking for. How do I know that you will do this? What's the assurance? Uh, we do have to live according to God's design to have that. So we don't get assurance apart from God's design. One of the reasons our hearts are wired to think input-output is because we're created to live according to a design. We have an owner's manual. Um, each of our hearts has an owner's manual that we do our, our daily level head at best to throw away as soon as we can. We spend the rest of our days 
wondering why our lives uh, are terrible and trying to cobble together whatever ways we can to get back to that original owner's manual. I think one of the greatest signs of this is the self-help selections in Barnes & Noble just, it gets bigger and bigger every single year. It's like, it's just taking over a whole wall now. It used to just be, in, in my lifetime, it used to just be this section, right, in pop psychology, and now it's, it's a whole unit. It's trying to cobble together the original owner's manual instructions. How do we live our life? It's why every major religion other than Christianity is marked with a checklist. Because we know in our heart of hearts that we are created for a particular design. God's righteousness is obvious to us. We just spend a lot of time trying to numb it. And what does God command? What is the law he commands? In Exodus 6.1, we learn that God has designed a design for Pharaoh's life. And we've seen already up to this point, even from the beginning, that Pharaoh, unlike all the other Pharaohs who desired to know who Joseph was, this one has risen up, has no interest, and he is content on disobeying and, uh, and, and sliding uh, Joseph's God, right? The, the true Lord God Almighty, Yahweh himself. So he's made, he's made his mission to crush the people of God, which is contrary to God's design for him. And so God has a plan to judge him. But our third point is the gap between God's design and our experience can convince us that assurance is too far away to grasp. Right? So we see also in Exodus 2 and 3 that there's a gap between what God's design is and what our own experience is. Let me, let me remind you just of what's happening here. Moses, again, is seeing these are the conditions, God, you said if I announce this that he would let the people go, which that's not really what God told Moses would happen, right? Remember, Moses has already been told what's going to happen, but he's, he's looking for a particular output, and God doesn't respond the way Moses thinks with this protest. He simply replies, verse 2 and 3, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make known to them. When God reminds Moses of his name, the expectation of relationship up to Moses is super distant. Do you see that there? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob don't even know the covenant name of God. He's only ever been known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. Listen for that gap again. Verse three, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. There's a gap. And why can't we bridge that gap? Because ever since the garden, there's, there's never, there was no need for an intermediate, right? In the garden, there was no need for an intermediate between right, God and man. There's perfect communion, wholeness. And then Adam and Eve, they ripped a tear in the cosmos. Ellis was asking a question this week. He said, Dad, why, uh, why, why do we need to... He's lots of questions right now happening. Nathaniel's baptism did a lot of good in our, in our household, which is its purpose. It's why you should be baptized, because it provokes gospel conversation in other people's lives. And uh, why do we need a Savior, right? Why, do, why does my heart want to obey naturally? Why can't I always seem to obey when I want to obey? Like, well, buddy, like, welcome to the family literally, right? Our first parents really messed this up for us. They ripped a tear in the cosmos, tearing apart wholeness with God. And we know that gap. Adam immediately feels it, and he sows fig leaves on himself to cover it. That's how immediate and how real that gap feels. We know it too. There's a, assurance is just too far to reach. Moses, again, looking at circumstances, but 
you said this, Lord. When, when, is, when is this going to happen? There's a moment in Peter's life I think really illustrates the gap between our circumstances, what we experience, and the assurance we're looking for, the total assurance we're looking for. And, uh, and our, illustrates the difference between our own confidence and our abilities in this. You're familiar with it. You remember Matthew tells us that Jesus is walking on the water and, uh, and, and Peter walks out with him. He calls Peter out to the water and uh, Matthew tells that Peter actually walked on the water. Matthew 14, 29 says, he, uh, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So Peter, act, so not just Jesus walked on water, but actually Peter walked on water too. Matthew 14, 29 but then Peter looks at his circumstances. He takes his eyes off of Jesus, looks at his circumstances, his experience, and then immediately sunk into the gulf between where he was and where Jesus was. And immediately begins to sink, and he was sure he would die. He, he thinks he's going to die, and uh, he would not reach Jesus, but then Jesus, of course, does what? Reaches out to him, right? What a great, what a great sign that, that Peter, he's like us. I'm going to die. Jesus reaches out his hand and uh, takes his hand. But why? Why does Jesus reach out his hand in that moment? And then why does God not really give Moses the answer that we would want in that moment? It brings us to our next point. Because God's reputation and movement towards us is the reassurance and guarantee of our assurance. Right? It is the guarantee of our assurance. So we tend to think that if our circumstances change then our assurance is, is more sure. Then I'm positive God is saving me, will save me, because things are going better for me. But that's not happening for Moses. God's moving even closer to the nation of Israel. He's, ever been, he's revealing more of who he is more than he ever has before, closing that gap, and yet things to Moses feel like it's worse. But God's reputation movement towards us is the guarantee of our, of our assurance. You see, God makes it clear to Moses that his reputation is at stake by linking his name to Moses and Israel's future. So God, in this passage, he links who his name is through Moses to Moses to Israel's history. My namesake, my my reputation is wrapped up in everything that I'm about to do to Pharaoh, God is telling Moses. What does he promise? Just look, he's he's establishing his lordship. Verse six, he establishes redemption. I'm I'm gonna redeem you, you see that there? Adoption, this language of take, I will take you in verse 7, take you to be my people, and I will be your God. This is adoption language. And then co-dwelling in verse 8. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land, I will give it to you for a possession. If you weren't counting when I was reading, I, I doubt you were, but if you weren't counting when I was reading Exodus 6, 4 through 8, there are seven I will statements. Seven I will statements. God is making it clear here that Moses is not going to get anything done on his own. It's God who will do it. Let me just read these again to you. Verse 6, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into this land that I swore to give, you, give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. God's making it clear to Moses that Moses isn't actually going to contribute anything to his salvation. 
There's nothing literally that is going to be done that Moses is going to, even the taking out, even the settling, it's going to be Moses' feet that walk there, but it's going to be the Lord who takes them. There's a continuity here between the patriarchs we see and Moses today. God's promise has never changed. The promise he establishes to Abraham that I will make you a great nation and I will give you this land, that promise throughout all the changing circumstances, between all of the unfaithfulness, all the ways that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they try to manufacture God's blessing. They try to manipulate the conditions of the covenant to ensure that they get an heir. We talked about that at Christmas time, remember? God's still faithful. God's promise extends through generations. And there's an unchanging nature. There's this really beautiful scene, and, and you might not recognize it immediately, but uh, Abraham, at the very beginning, when he's, when, he's won, um, when he's won battles, he goes and he buys a field, and he weighs it out, and, and he, he, refuses to, he refuses to have it given to him as a spoil of war. He buys the land, as a, so he has a claim to the deed. You remember this? He weighs out 10 shekels of silver, and he buys the land because he knows he's coming back. People don't buy land that they don't think they're going to come back to. There's an unchanging nature to God's promise. There's also tremendous movement here. Listen to, listen to what Victor Hamilton wrote. This phrase, I will take you to myself as people, is, uh, or the more common phrase, right? I will be for you a God. Or this is widely recognized as a covenant formula, as a, as a promise-making formula. This language appears right, everywhere in ancient Near Eastern context for marriage and adoption. So God is using language that Moses is familiar with to show the nature of the relationship. There are two kind of covenants that human beings enter into which are permanent, ought to be, and are name-changing, marriage and adoption. In marriage, you make an unbreakable promise, right, to come together to be one, and then in it, People's names change. And then adoption, the same. People who weren't originally a part of you become a part of you. I didn't know this, but when you adopt a child, they reissue a birth certificate with the adoptive parents' names on them. I didn't know that. And then my age, when the birth would have happened. It's, it's really remarkable that that happens that way. So my son, my adopted son, has a new birth certificate and uh, we, the court date, I was 30, but his birth certificate, my age on the birth certificate is 27, because that's how old I was when he was born. Such is God's adoption of us that our identities are remade. Uh, J.I. Packer, a guy, says that um, a lot of us like to think about uh, justification as one of the graces of the gospel, and it is, the fact that we're made righteous, that our sins are put away forever, um, Packer says, but it's adoption that's the real blessing of the gospel, that we aren't just in the house, but we become members of the house. We get the Father's robe and the Father's ring and the Father's name. That's the gift of the gospel. This is the language here. I will take you and I will be with you. This is, this is adoption, marriage language. Do you hear the gospel in Exodus here? God has linked his name to our future as well, okay? So it's not just here to Israelite's future, but our future as well. Let me remind you of what the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 6. I'll read uh, Hebrews chapter 6, a bit of an extended, uh, four verses. For when God made a promise to Abraham, 
since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his name and his promise, it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge may have a strong encouragement to hold fast in the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, when we talk about Christianity as distinct among world religions, it's because it's the one who, in my opinion, is the most brutally honest, most truthful about the desperation of the human situation. It's the only one that doesn't even try to give you a checklist because it knows how utterly hopeless our desperate situation is. If we got a checklist, we wouldn't even do it right because we'd be proud We'd be proud about the gap and how good we were doing closing the gap ourselves instead of feeling the shame that there was a gap in the first place and that it was taking us so long to close the gap. Christ, in, the, in his kindness towards us, welcomes people not who have it together, but those who are what? Heavy laden. Those who are weary. He says, my burden is light. I'm gentle and lowly. There's no human solution available. There isn't really a checklist that can solve our problems because the problem that we ultimately have is relational and it's relational with ultimate reality. You and I have a broken relationship with the Lord God Almighty and we live under the lie that we're the master of our own fates and we can fix the situation and when our circumstances don't line up to our expectation, it crashes down on us all the time and crushes us every time. There's a book, it's one of my favorite books in all church history, it's written by a guy in 1095. Why Did God Become a Man? By a theologian named Anselm. I think it's an important book because it, it asks and then answers a really important question. Why did God become a man? Why did God become a man? Ultimately, he summarizes the whole Bible to write that God deserves awe from humanity as a creator, but humans find endless things to replace him with and to give glory to and to give worship to to steal from God, to give to those things. But nothing can replace or repay that debt because ultimately we've, we've broken faith with ultimate reality. We've broken faith with the creator of our souls. Can't get away from that, that we've stolen from that person. So only God can repay that debt, um, but he must enter into our account to pay the debt because if it comes from him, then it doesn't make up for the gap. It's just kind of, well, we won't forgive the debt. So God becomes a man to come into our life to live what we should have lived in order to pay back to himself what we should have given to him. So he becomes a human to live what we should have lived so that God does not frustrate his own purposes for glorifying humanity. Whereas Paul wrote in much fewer words, Romans 8, 3, he came in the flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. But now you don't have to read Anselm. But it is one of my favorite books because it very beautifully tells a story about why God became man. It's about movement. I hope you see movement here that God is not passively allowing the Israelites to suffer under the yoke of the Egyptians. He's moving towards them. There's movement towards you as well. It should tell us something about the perfections of God, that he doesn't allow his creation to falter or wallow in its own frustrated aspects, but he prepares a place for his people 
to be brought out in Egypt. And we're going to find assurance for ourselves. My next point, we're going to find assurance for ourselves, not looking at ourselves or circumstances like Moses does, but looking to Christ. There's movement here to the Israelites. Look, look here again with me in verse 9. Moses does speak to them. There's something happening in their heart. Verse 9, they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. There's a, a depth to their despair, I think, that at another time, we had more time, I'd love to analyze, maybe with future opportunities. But um, the Israelites are really despairing because there's been generations that they've suffered under this yoke. And their broken spirit makes it hard for them to believe on Christ, which is part of the reason it's so important that God moves towards them. God is going to repeatedly, we're going to see next week, God's going to repeatedly, even, even when Moses is like, it's not working and it's not going to work, God is not really concerned with what Moses thinks works or not. He's going to continue to send Moses in back in and again because he's pursuing his people. Moses goes back to the Lord and tells him, hey, I told the people they don't even believe. If they don't believe, why is Pharaoh going to believe? And God is so uninterested in the circumstances of Moses' experience that he continues to send him back in because this is about God's movement towards his people. Moses is a a mouthpiece for the Lord. Of course, he cares about Moses as a human, as a person, but Moses has a task, and God is going to save his people because his name is at stake, and he will have a people for himself because he promised himself he would. He tells him to go back. But you see, Christian, there's no masks here. The Bible is so clear about the human experience. The broken spirit does not nullify the fact that God has staked his reputation to save a people to himself. And anyone who's going to call out to Jesus, anyone who's done with making peace with that gap and trying to bridge it themselves, anybody who's willing to cry out to Jesus will have that and can enjoy eternal life with Jesus today. Would you even today just say, I'm done trying to bridge this gap. I see my circumstances, I see my experience. It's just overwhelming. Throw yourself on Jesus. Do it today. There's... Endless, endless experiences of, of, uh, of, uh, of sorrow and of questions of assurance. But there's, there's, uh, there is a birthright to the Christian to know. How do I know that I have, in fact, thrown myself on Jesus? If uh, it's one of our birthrights, you could look it up in uh, Ephesians 3, uh, 11 through 12. But part of the gospel is that God gives himself to us, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Spirit, to us as a seal, as a guarantee of our inheritance. Just look back at your catechism for me. I'll pull up. I wasn't thinking about this, but as no one was reading, I was like, this is insane. Providentially, page six. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he pleads our cause in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven. You think about it, we have our flesh in heaven. You could think about that endlessly and it would not stop fascinating you a guarantee that Christ our head will take us, his members, his body parts, his hand, his feet, his, his head to himself in heaven. Third, he sends the spirit to us as a further guarantee. Coming out of the Reformation, as I close, I promise I'm, I'm wrapping up, there's this moment where people are, in the first generation after the people are really liberated. It's like, we no longer have checklists. But the second generation like, Great, we don't have a checklist, but how do we know we're saved? <laughs> There's a theologian, his name is uh, William Perkins. He wrote a book called The Golden Chain. I commend it to you. 
it's dense, and I don't think it's been modernized, so it's, it's like Shakespeare to read, but it's worth the effort. And uh, it's part of the reason that I chose the Confession of Faith, because William Perkins is looking at the second journal, and like, yeah, you don't have a checklist anymore, and you're wondering, how do I know that I have assurance? And William Perkins says, take heart, Christian, because no one who isn't a Christian doesn't wonder, am I in Christ? That's link number one. Is there a flicker of a flame? Link one. And Perkins in the book, he's basically writing Romans 8, okay? Romans 8, which is that we're called and then justified and justified. We're sanctified and we're sanctified, then we're going to be glorified, right? And he works himself up and he says, if, if you see the flicker of the flame, look up. And who put that flicker in the flow? The Holy Spirit put that flicker. Okay, well, if you have the Holy Spirit, who gave you the Holy Spirit? Well, God gave me the Holy Spirit. Well, why did God give you the Holy Spirit? Because he went to heaven to send the Holy Spirit to you, okay? And you work your way up and you see Christ on the cross for you, Christian. So how do you know that you're saved? How do you have assurance that God has made movement towards you? It's your birthright. It's that God has given you everything necessary for godliness. And you have, as his word promises in 2 Peter 1.4, been granted to us, to us, very precious and, and great promises so that you become partakers in divine nature. You've been given the Holy Spirit to be partakers of divine nature. So Christian, if you today are wondering, follow the chain and see Christ crucified for you on the cross. For you. Not some big group, but for Terry Hill. Right? For Katie Fowler, Jesus Christ. Crucified for you. Right? Even if it was only you, right? It's marvelous. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, thank you for... Thanks for moving towards us. That uh, we can look at our circumstances like Moses and wonder, are you for us? And uh, we know, Lord, that you are because you've moved towards us, not just in uh, ascending, but ascending because ascending is better so that you would send your Holy Spirit to dwell within us. So we pray that you would not quench the flame that's within us, that you would fan that flame. And even as we move to the supper and we take and eat your body and your blood, that we would see the spiritual presence of you and remember our salvation and remember that as real as the bread is, so is your body in heaven for us. And as real as the cup is, so was your blood shed for us. Thank you, Lord, for this great salvation. Give us eyes of faith to see you today. Even in the supper, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.